hi everyone and welcome to the second installment of Open Swim. We are so excited to be here with you today. I'm Hallie Bram Kogelschatz here um, as as I was last time around with Eric Kogelschatz, Jennifer Cho Salas, and Brian Andrew Jasinski. Well, thank you everyone for being here and thank you to everyone who's listening. We were really excited um, after releasing the first episode to see that we received such a warm reception. Absolutely. It was fun to have people say that they were looking for podcasts and adding it to their queue and they couldn't wait to drive home to listen to our ramblings and thoughts. So (laughs) thank you. So with spring in the air, we naturally, our minds turn to one thing, fall clothing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So uh, even though the temperatures are actually getting nice and warm very early this year, this past Wednesday marked the wrap of New York Fashion Week, which featured the lines for fall 2017, and some interesting trends and coincidences that are very reflective of what we're seeing in our climate, both uh, politically and socially. And um, so I think there's some definitely some interesting statements being made on the runways this season. Absolutely. But before we get to that, how about Hot Convict, guys? Hot con- convict walking the runway for Philip Klein. He Plyne. has arrived. He, he has, has arrived. arrived. <laughs> we all knew he would go. I guess orange really is the new black. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> so <out>. true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I think it's interesting. You know, one thing that I wasn't necessarily surprised to see, but was definitely a trend was. Hot convict guy. Uh, well, yeah, hot convict. <laughs> but I mean, on top of that, you know, there there is this whole nonverbal discussion around inclusivity happening and you know and some of it was a little bit more front and forward um with statement t-shirts at you know public school and you know some of the other runway shows that were very literal and what they were saying about the current political social climate in the states and elsewhere you also saw some interesting things with inclusivity you know with madeline stewart Uh, are you guys familiar with madeline stewart Please school us. Who's Madeline Stewart? Madeline Stewart. Madeline Stewart, um, she actually, she a couple years ago, she started making her way onto the runway and into print editorial. Um, she's a model who actually is from Australia and has Down syndrome. And this week, she launched her new line, which is called 21 Reasons Why. And she actually turned 21 this year, but the reason she called her collection 21 Reasons Why is because the 21st chromosome is what, identifies somebody as having down syndrome the show that she put on was less about fashion i would say than just you know having the opportunity to even put on a show at all Um, and she's been a person who's been really trying to push the conversation around inclusivity over the last few years um, as have others with discussions around um, race and religion of models body type things of that nature so i thought that that was definitely something of note to talk about the other thing that I thought was really interesting in looking at the shows themselves as well as the commentary from some of the major fashion outlets was this discussion around um, nonverbal statements around femininity and feminism. And we saw a number of different designers feature suiting again or reference suiting in different ways, such as this trend of banker stripes. You'll always have an element of menswear in most, I would say, you know, fashion shows, you know, collection of fashion shows. However, this one was a little bit more pronounced. We were seeing um, literal suiting. We were seeing striping. We were seeing um, reinterpretations of 
classic elements like the trench. And, and also a lot of very oversized suiting. Absolutely. So almost obliterating the idea of the, the female form itself. Exactly. And, you know, what I thought was interesting about it upon reading what the critics were saying, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. They were saying that many felt... Um, hold on one second. What I thought was really interesting when I started reading what the critics were saying about it was that people like Sally Singer from Vogue were wondering, like, who was the suiting actually created for? And they talked about this idea that right now we have, you know, as a nation, very low trust in banking and other legacy sectors like politics and whatnot, um, as well as this backlash to the whole um, idea of what it means to be feminine. So, you know, that's, you know, referential of things like hashtag dress like a woman and some of the things coming out after the Women's March. And, you know, this idea that are we going back in time from a fashion perspective? Are we going back to a place where to be respected like a man, a woman has to put on the power suit and go into the office? Um, Whereas, you know, I saw some other critics talking about, well, some of the suiting was deconstructed. It did have very unusual detailing to it. So are we really talking about a reinvention of the suit? So I, I thought that that was a really interesting trend. For me, the suiting was a nod to this whole pantsuit nation movement around the election, before the election around Hillary Clinton and how she's this pantsuit connoisseur and people are rising up, you know, showing up to the polls wearing their pantsuits. And a recent reference was the Grammys where Katy Perry wore a pantsuit during her performance. And I think she even said in interviews it was a direct reference to Hillary Clinton. I mean, she was a very vocal supporter of Hillary Clinton during the campaign. But it was her kind of female power, anti-establishment performance. So her wearing a pantsuit, when I first saw her, immediately made me think about this whole feminist movement around Pantsuit Nation. And it made me think about it during Fashion Week with all the suiting. What I think is really interesting about it is it kind of mirrors the conversation around what it means to be a feminist in this day and age. There's been a lot of that conversation over the last few years, especially because the way that you know people of, say, my mother's generation who were involved in women's lib view and participate in feminism versus my generation versus millennials, that there have been a lot of articles talking about how many of them for several years felt very disconnected from that. They took a lot of what the feminist movement over the last 30 years has, or 40 years, has worked for. They took a lot of that for granted. And I do wonder if that tide is changing. And I wonder if you were to talk to women of different generations through that context, how they would view some of the things we're talking about, even in fashion. And if they see a connection between that or if to them, it just has, it has a completely different meaning. We could do a whole podcast around feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Jen and I will take that one offline. (laughs) I actually saw an article after New York Fashion Week concluded that saying one of the major trends from this year was the free the nipple. (laughs) <laughs> How funny. Um, there was Janet Jackson did that years ago. Yeah, know, Janet Jackson say. already liberated the nipple. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of shears. I think Kylie Jenner walked the runway in a sheer blouse for La Perla. And there were some other things that um, that happened. But just trying to reclaim the female form and the female body and, and tie in with what's happening around conversations of um, femininity. That brings up an interesting question with that many people ask with New York Fashion Week is when so many of the things that we are seeing on the runway are these very avant-garde 
styles and presentations. And the question is always, who or where does one wear that? Who would wear that and where does one wear that too? So are we at a place where, you know, I think New York Fashion Week has always been performance art. But the question is where it comes to in terms of marketing and commerce, how how much are these fashions and things that are being presented to the public on the runway something is it more of a statement or are they selling their product because clearly these blouses or these cutaway suits that are exposing the female form is not something that a woman is going to purchase and wear to the office yeah no you're absolutely right what's kind of interesting about it too is i think there was a deviation from that in the shows that we saw last year for both fall and spring where you had designers that were piloting what does it mean to actually put a collection on the runway that you can buy in store um, as ready to wear almost instantaneously because there was um, you know this trend of buy it you know, or see it now buy it now um, and it, it put a major strain on a lot of the the large design houses to try and rapid you know produce something um, to meet consumer demand. And I think, uh, you know, Brian, you're exactly right. I think we're starting to move further away from that. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's indicative of designers seeing that that's just not a good model, that there is something um, special about what they put on the runway. About the show, the yeah. showmanship. You know, everybody loves a show idea. And in no way am I discounting, you know, uh, you know, I love the idea of this grand presentation and these surrealist presentations that so many of these shows do but I suppose also the logical side of me if somebody who's in marketing and is in design where at the end of the day the idea is to sell a product and obviously these designers are presenting a vibe and there's and obviously there's a connection people have such a, a connection to the labels that they follow and that they wear and so just the tone of the show itself is something that they're selling and i think the disruptive art is the message so that's they're trying to reach these very specific audiences and and through that kind of showmanship of the art they're reaching those audiences in a deeper way and then that can be translated to the commerce side of things as they have more appropriate attire to wear in in different environments i always saw runway shows as conceptual artistic presentations kind of like if you go to a, a car show you'll see a lot of concept vehicles. I would always um, equate fashion shows kind of the same way I look at car shows. These are concepts. These are highly, um, um, what's the word? These are concepts and an artistic vision of the designer, but not necessarily something that you're going to see on the rack in the store. But what you see in the store is an iteration of that, original concept by that designer so i i don't know maybe maybe runway shows have changed over the years and it's less of a um or designers are thinking more about the commerce side i don't know as an artist i think think that would restrict you yeah restrict you swings because you know when runway shows first began supposed to be a spectacle well actually originally it wasn't originally it was this is what you can buy i mean when you look back um even like in paris yeah like in mm -hmm. christian dior's day you know he'd put designs on the runway that the intention was you know you're going to come into my showroom and i'm going to sell you this suit and you know it was 
you know, a way to sell the product before traditional marketing vehicles that we're working with now and department stores and things of that nature were as widespread. So, you know, I, I think that there's a, a bit of back and forth, you know, and, and what is the purpose of a runway show? What do people really want to see? I do think a lot about this um, suspension of reality idea and, you know, people talk about it with cinema and why do people go to the cinema? Why does that become more popular at certain times um, in culture, much like during the wars and the Depression, people flock to the cinema to escape. You know, I wonder if there is a little bit of escapism that people are looking for now and why there is more um, spectacle um, happening in some of these runway shows because there, you know, there is turmoil in our country at the moment. You know, whether, you know, you're talking about political, racial, um, you know, in a variety of different ways, you know, there there seem to be some real tough conversations happening, and I think people do do want a bit of escape from that from time to time. So maybe that is one reason why we're seeing spectacle. And speaking of, we talked about the Philip Pline show earlier. Um, you know, he talked a lot about wanting to create something um, that was a true spectacle. Um, that's kind of what he's about in general. But this year, what he really wanted to do was bring back spectacle. And so we talked about Hot Convict before, but he also had Pete Wentz from Fall Out Boy walk the runway. He not only invited celebrities to his show, but he made them a part of the show in some ways, sitting in the audience. And that's nothing new to Fashion Week. But, you know, he was inviting people like Tiffany Trump and Kylie Jenner came and Paris Hilton was there, who we haven't seen a lot from in the last few years. No, we wondered where she had been. I know we've just been waiting for her to return. <laughs> um, but but I do think it's interesting in looking at you know his show at New York Public Library and what he did there um, to see that it was so over the top and um, maybe that is something that people are craving is a little bit more um, suspension of reality in you know infused with their fashion. I think it ties back into the conversation we had about films and how people do need an outlet. They need a, a place for entertainment. And I think that fashion falls right there. It's something that people can really engage with and it takes them to a new place. That's one reason why people love it. You know, it's a, it's personal expression. It's art. Um, and absolutely, you know, it is a reflection of culture. You know, I think, you know, it, it's kind of a funny example, but when you see the movie, the devil wears Prada and she's talking about trends in color and how that blue came to be in the sweater and you know, that it's very purposeful. It's very thoughtful. It didn't just happen by accident. Um, you know, I think that, you know, that's that's what we start to see with runway shows. They expose a side of the fashion and retail apparel world, um, you know, beauty world. And we haven't even talked about beauty trends that are really reflective of what's happening to people at a psychological level. Um, so I do think that's very, very interesting. And I think the idea of it being exposure to the inner workings of the fashion industry, that that's what makes it a catalyst for transforming culture. It just, I, I do think they're always pushing trends and rarely are they actually reflecting, but creating those trends is really that the model for fashion. I think any good designer is a good interpreter of human nature. I had the pleasure of being up and close, up close and personal um, with many of the mainstream design brands when I was working as marketing director for Saks Fifth Avenue. And what I saw was that, you know, there was a real understanding of people that was happening in the fashion world. And to draw the line between the human behavior sort of aspect, um, the psychological aspect, 
the design aspect and then to draw that line all the way to the rack and you walking into a store um, what that experience is like the visual merchandising um, the advertising the marketing of it um, it's 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 just really interesting to see it from the inside and follow that journey um, and see you know how it holds a mirror up to many of us in a way that we're not able to do for ourselves yeah. One thing we haven't talked about at all, <laughs> um, despite we, you know, referencing it, is what were the trends this year um, that we saw at New York Fashion Week? And I have to say, I, you know, not that I want to pan the collections, um, but I was a little bit underwhelmed with what I was seeing on the runway. Personally, um, we saw a continuation of cutouts and sort of '80s throwback, more off the shoulder. Um, which, you know, we saw kind of like a double off the shoulder, you know, last spring and into fall. And now we're seeing kind of the flash dance, flash a shoulder look coming back. Um, I did think that this idea of the fold over waist band was kind of interesting. It's sort of this asymmetrical look that a couple of the different runway shows were sporting. I think it can be done in an interesting way for sure. Um, Although I do have a skirt from a couple of seasons ago that has that detail on it. So I don't know that it's completely new, but we're <laughs> just seeing a lot more of it. A um, couple of things that I'm not really loving. Um, bathrobes. Bathrobes as clothes. We saw pajamas as clothes I a couple seasons ago. I hated that pajama movement. Yeah. So I am so not on board with the bathrobe well, bu- movement. Buckle up, Jen, because it's coming. No. <laughs> People already wear their bathrobes to the airport, so that's nothing new. That's, <laughs> that's my biggest lobby. pet peeve. Absolutely. I don't need to see somebody in their pair of sweatpants with a certain color emblazoned on their behind with a pair of boots. Note to self, I don't need to see that. But Eric, that's something that I've always agreed with. We have lost the reverence of travel. Back in the day, there was... It was an event and it was something people dressed for. And now it's literally, it's like you're in your living room and travel, you know, walking up the steps is, is you're dressed the same way to fly to Paris. You're getting on a million dollar vehicle to travel through the air and you're going to wear sweatpants. <laughs> you know, dress up. Also, when you walk out of the door, you represent your family. You know, so you should always try to look your best. Absolutely. I think about that a lot because I I can't tell you how many times I've been on a plane and made a business connection or made a personal connection or bumped into somebody that I know. um, And you never want to meet someone looking like a slob. I remember we've been traveling at one point last year internationally and we're flying back and it was a terrible, terrible <laughs> travel journey back. But we ended up, you know, hitting weather and having a long time coming back through customs. And because of both of those things, missing our flight back to Cleveland and having to stay um, overnight in D.C. And by the time we got back, um, we were at the airport. We were sort of like your tired, huddled masses. <laughs> a little worse for the wear. Ver- a little worse for the wear. And um, definitely, you know, wearing our clothes for the second day in a row and I bumped into people that we knew uh, in the elevator and I just felt very uncomfortable, um, not because, you know, a vanity, but just because I wasn't presenting my best. And I, I think that that can just happen to you at any moment when you're traveling. So why not set yourself up for success from the get go and not pull on those dirty sweatpants when you go to the Hopkins? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's an ad campaign waiting to happen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I know as a designer and all of us has, who come from a marketing and strategy background, one of the greatest challenges is when we work with a company that is an existing company and they're looking to rebrand. And it's always an interesting tightrope to walk because at the same time as you are bringing a new visual voice to their company or their industry, you also have to be aware of their existing audience as well as the new audiences that they may be trying to reach through via this new identity that we are creating for them. And Fashion Week actually was a great stage for this very topic. I think a great example of a organization, a company taking a, a bold step in terms of a reinvention of their brand would be the iconic American brand Calvin Klein, which debuted the first collection under their new artistic director, Raph Simmons, formerly, um, or most recently, uh, he was the creative director of Dior. Um, so quite a different brand for him to be designing for and especially this collection um i should say this brand that is calvin klein everybody knows it It, it's this all-american blue jeans white t-shirt um you know their models look like ken dolls and then you bring in this european designer very minimalist very steely um a very minimalist sensibility and so i wanted to talk about you know, what, what our thoughts are on, on, you know, when you're trying to invigorate an existing brand that's been around for nearly 40 years. And this is a rather radical approach of bringing in Raph as a, as their creative director. And when you're trying to not only invigorate the brand, but bring it to a a broader audience is what are your, are your thoughts on this approach? Well, you know, I think Brian and I were actually talking about this before. I think that um, what's kind of interesting is there are a lot of designer brands that are struggling with their identity right now. Over the last few years, we've seen a lot of change in this world. Um, I remember a few years ago, we saw the evolution from Yves Saint Laurent to YSL to Saint Laurent, you know, and trying to figure out even what to call themselves anymore. Uh, Valentino has gone through a number of different iterations, you know, and now we see this with Calvin Klein and, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, who they are today and who they want to be in the future. And I think that that's largely reflective of their customer base and what the designer customer is looking for at the moment. Um, You know, I I think that, you know, it's, it's an interesting departure. It's a really interesting appointment over at Calvin Klein. Um, It'll be, really um, intriguing to follow how the consumer reacts to this. Exactly. I, I think it's a bold choice and I absolutely love it. I've always, I love his work. I And I particularly, particularly enjoy the fact that he draws so much from fine art um, and brings fine art into his design, literally uh, collaborating with painters or uh, actually employing these very 
avant-garde, not expected techniques, especially when he was with Dior, you know, that's known as this very pristine, uh, almost precious uh, presentation of a dress. And, and that's carrying over to what he's doing with Calvin Klein already, you know, just in this first collection and, and even just the advertising that's being uh, put out there is a radical departure because everybody knows going all the way back to the 80s, Brooke Shields, nobody comes between me and my Calvins, early 90s, Marky Mark, you know, when he was, when Mark Wahlberg was Marky Mark, and um, which okay, I think boss. a lot of people forget about, um, you know. But- I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> With his, you know, slouching jeans and and cavorting around this, uh, you know, in the black and white commercials with Kate Moss, who at the time was this, you know, coming out of the, you know, the glamazon models of the 80s. She was this advent of a, a new era of model and what was an ideal, quote unquote, beauty. The in, waif. The, in the industry. She launched that old waif. The waif, look. exactly. Yep. Or I should say brought it back, you know, because you know, obviously Twiggy in the right. 60s. Yeah. But, you know, I think the 70s and the 80s were um, going back to what we were talking about, the power suits earlier, were these, you know, the uh, Brigitte Nielsen and even Cindy Crawford, you know, the um, very, you know, athletic um, tall women and suddenly you have and this androgynous and you it, know you got into androgyny a bit in that era as well you know and you know redefining what it means to be feminine exactly and how, what the importance of that is and where do you land on the gender identity spectrum exactly and so where, where you had you know redefine perfect transition you um, redefining what is um that those that gender role um, when you had this very red-blooded you know muscular models and you know like Antonio Sabato Jr. and like I said Marky Mark and now he's using these very the waifish uh, figures but applying it to the male body and um, you know so whereas before you had these models that looked like Olympic athletes again it's bringing his much more minimal minimalist European sensibility to the ads and how will the public respond to that will be really interesting to see. And some of the, uh, for example, one of the ads features a group of models in their in their classic Calvin Klein briefs, but they're looking at a painting. You don't see them from the front. You really don't see the product itself. Uh, another offset of the current campaign for Calvin Klein uh, will show their, uh, their line Calvin Klein by appointment, which are dresses made to order split down the middle of the ad is then just a pair of the Calvin Klein briefs laying flat on a table. So they're, they he's completely removed the model, the humanity, basically. But you still have this iconic pair of Calvin Klein briefs. Um, so again, approaching it in a much more avant-garde, art installation way. And will this audience that is probably over the years and even currently has connected with Calvin Klein as being this, again, very all-American, robust, quote-unquote, idealistic figure, the way how they will interpret and how new audiences will react to his helm of this iconic label, I'm fascinated to watch it. 
I'm looking at this ad right now, and it's Calvin Klein by appointment, what you're talking about, and it's um, Bobby Millie Brown, the actress who plays Eleven from Stranger Things. Oh, cool. I'm loving it. Exactly. I mean, she's yeah. got that androgynous look. Yeah, right? I, I think he's taking what everybody expects Calvin Klein to be and completely turning it inside out. <laughs> I, not even turning it inside out. I feel like he's, you know, cutting a new pattern for them, you know, figurati- figuratively. Let me say that again. I believe he's cutting a new pattern for them figuratively. Hello. I believe he's cutting a new pattern for them in both a figurative and literal sense. Yeah, in this one, I mean, he's he's a... Uh, reaching into pop culture just with the whole Stranger Things phenomenon. And then he's also reaching a new generation. Um, I mean, she's 14, I think. And then also touching upon the, the gender identity conversation. I just hope she's not in her underwear. No, she's in a beautiful outfit, actually. <laughs> I, I, I want to wear that. I don't want to see a 14-year-old in their underwear. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful top. It's a beautiful... I don't even know how you would... It looks like embroidery, but not embroidered and... You'll have to look at it. I think, too, if you boil it down to the essentials for a business, we're talking about the mission of Calvin Klein. They're maintaining that. However, they're modifying their vision a bit with the introduction of this new creative director. If if you look at what Fortune 500 companies do, the average CEO is in place for about 4.9 years, and they switch them out. And then even from the perspective of the president of the United States, we limit them to two terms, so eight years. So if you think about how can you optimize your vision, it does sometimes mean bringing in new leadership. And being bold with the decisions from day one. Absolutely. And has that creativity to maintain it over time. And the, and the managerial skills to enforce you know, action over time as well. Well, and I think what also is a bold move in appointing Raf is the fact that he, though in, you know, in the European fashion market is and you know people that watch fashion know his name and know of him but in a bolder sense a lot of people do not so and again I think that is symbolic of the radical changes that he's applying to the brand you know and speaking to the bold move Hallie that you spoke of you know he's not a designer that people know or are comfortable with to guide them through this transition so it's it's jarring mainstream american design exactly sure. that consumer you know by and large the calvin klein consumer especially when you look at the version of that brand that exists most rampantly in, in department, department stores, stores and exactly like that. and it's a top five brand for example for macy's wow. you know so that's large absolutely well-known one of the most well-known department stores in the country and to have a brand that has that market and that commodity for that company i would imagine you know they are very curious to see like what will this new captain you know what will his ship bring them and and how will it how will it affect what the product is and and how people react to it and therefore affecting their sales it may be indicative of some exciting things to come in the fashion industry some risk taking and um you know, truly, you know, experimentation by legacy brands, you know, what are they willing to do um, to remain relevant? You know, I think that, um, I think that a couple of years ago, you know, we saw that a bit with DKNY, you know, we, we saw Donna Karen try and invent that brand um, in some ways unsuccessfully, but in other ways it was, it was interesting to watch 
to see, okay, well, you know, there was a version of this brand that was more um, high-end couture, you know, even, you know, in the 80s, you know, even into the 90s, and it really did, beca- it really did become more ready-to-wear um, and athleisure <laughs> even in some ways. And, you know, and how, how to manage that transition over time when your customer's taste changes um, while still remaining true to the DNA of the brand and who you want to be at a mission and vision level. Exactly. And not only do their tastes change, they grow up. They age, you know. So therefore, their perspective on fashion or you know what they want to say or, or what place they are in at their at that point in their lives even purchasing power for my pants over there on my hope chest i've never seen purple underwear before calvin calvin why why do you keep calling me calvin well that is your name isn't it calvin klein it's written all over your underwear Ah. oh i guess they call you cal no actually people Call me Marty. Oh. Yeah, something I've been noticing that's really caught my attention um, are the ads that we've been seeing coming off of the Super Bowl and the Grammys. But one in particular was this great Nike ad around equality that ran during the Super Bowl. And they timed, I'm sure Nike timed it with the, um, the kickoff of Black History Month for the month of February. And... I just, I loved the art direction, the black and white. I loved the um, using of the the paint, um, the spray paint and symbolizing boundaries, boundaries, you know, in sports to signify um, boundaries on the tennis court, on the basketball court, on the football fields, but then also that being a, a symbolism of a greater uh, pushing of boundaries and... Um, I think it referenced everything from and a playground or a court or you know right the you know on which they're playing the sport or be it you know the platform of the stage of the country absolutely where everybody where everybody's in a sense interacting and reacting as one does during a game when we were kids athletes were on Wheaties boxes athletes were these heroes athletes didn't really talk about politics they didn't talk about social justice they didn't talk about maybe matters that were really important to them outside of sports and you're right we're seeing so much more of this political activism from athletes like LeBron James who was super vocal about supporting Hillary Clinton and then you've got Stephen Curry who was very vocal, well, vocal in his own kind of cheeky way against the CEO of Under Armour, whom he is sponsored by. Um, But I just think it's great how athletes are embracing this message of equality and um, kind of choosing not to stay on the sidelines, but being vocal and using their platform to raise awareness about these issues. But anyway, I loved the script of the Nike ad I'll read I'll just read some of it and it's interspersed with a narrator and then voices of these athletes but uh, one line that I loved was opportunity should be indiscriminate worth should outshine color the ball should bounce the same the line that I really liked was the the one that LeBron said which was if we can be equals here we can be equals everywhere I think that's something that really struck me because being (laughs) not just a Cavs fan but a a lifelong 
rabid Cavs fan for any, <laughs> anybody that's crossed my path pretty much in the last 30 plus years. Um, you know, I, I love basketball. I love the game. I'm a student of the game. But at the same time, I recognize what a lot of critics of the NBA say, which is, you know, it, it is a dichotomy. It's uh, a sport where you have a predominantly black athlete base and a predominantly white fan base. And there's have been a lot of questions and wealthy fan base, more so than football, more so than Major League Baseball. Um, and there have been a lot of critics of it as such. And I think a lot of I think a lot about that and what that means in terms of equality and what um, and what the separation is between the people playing the game and the people enjoying the game um, from a fan perspective is. And I do you know that that last line really struck me, um, you know, as a result and, you know, you know, kind of hitting that issue on the head. So speaking of commercials, we were talking about the Nike ad for the Super Bowl. What did we think about ads from the Grammys? I think it's really interesting to see the difference in what Target did last year at the Grammys and what they did this year. So last year, it was Gwen Stefani releasing a new song, Make Me Like You. And then this year, Target switched it up a little bit and they did a cover of It Takes Two by Rob Bays, but the artists were Carly Rae Jepsen and Lil Yachty. I thought it was an interesting approach that Target once again had this extensive real estate of airtime. Um, so it's a similar approach, but very different. Whereas Gwen Stefani's was a three and a half minute video but what's incredible about that spot is that was all live, complete with set changes, costume changes, um, you know, and not not just simple, uh, you know, I mean, some of it she's taking off a coat or putting a, a skirt on. But I thought one of the most incredible transitions was where, you know, they zoom in on her and she's singing her song. And then next thing you know, her, her pants are literally gone and she has roller skates <laughs> on. And then it's like a full on roller rink. Um, you know, so I think what's so impressive about that spot for Gwen Stefani from last year was production value and the precision that was evident in that ad. And it isn't to the very end of that production that you watch for three and a half minutes when they do an aerial, uh, you know, uh, shot, you know, pulling away from the the set, if you will, uh, that you see that it forms the Target logo. Whereas the sharp contrast was the version this year of It Takes Two, where it's clearly, you know, a pre-recorded, you know, and, and post like very heavily post-produced spot. Um, still very impressive and visually fascinating. Uh, so it's, it's, I guess a good question is what is the trade-off? Is it the spectacle of that live, anything could happen precision or the, the very elaborate, the very elaborate produced uh, visual candy that's in this year's ad? What do we think though about, like if you're, if we're comparing these two ads, what do we think about that the Gwen Stefani commercial, you don't really know it has anything to do with Target until the very end. With the Carly Rae Jepsen commercial, you know it's Target. You have Target shopping carts. You have Target care. Um, you have Target carpet. <laughs> carping shots. 
you have Target shopping carts, you have products that you'd find in Target that, that are prominently displayed in the commercial. For me, uh, after I watched the Gwen Stefani commercial and then realizing it's Target at the very end, I felt misled as a consumer, as somebody that was watching. I thought I was watching a performance that was about her song, and yeah, I, I get it, she's selling her single in Target. But I don't know, what do you guys think? Just about, it, I guess it's more of a question of authenticity. And to me, it's almost like when I read a blog article and then I find out at the very end it's sponsored by, you know, Target or Kellogg or whatnot. And I almost feel as a reader that I've been cheated in some way. I haven't been told from the beginning. It hasn't been transparent to me that what you're reading, what you're watching was actually sponsored by fill-in-the-blank corporation. The Gwen version was more of a branding piece. And this year, you could argue it's more product, but it's still a branding piece. I mean, it's, you know, three minutes long, all Target. But they show so many of the products. So it's over. You clearly know it's Target. But in the Gwen version, I don't feel that I was misled. I don't. I guess, you know, for me, maybe I'm just the the salty, cynical veteran here. But I feel like product placement is so prevalent these days i mean you see it in movies we've seen it in movies for years and years and years um we you know have started to see these paid performances much more frequently um you know and and it's it's you know it used to be a lot more blatant back when you know you had variety shows in the you know 30s 40s 50s now you know it is a little bit more subtle so i don't necessarily feel as misled just because i realize it's a reality of how major networks make their money and you know and brands are going to try and figure out creative ways to leverage that platform. I guess what I'm more concerned about is if I'm going to see something like that was I entertained? Did it provide me with any value? Yeah. And I'm less critical of it um, if I think that that's the case. You know, Jen, I think your example of seeing this with blog posts, I feel a little bit more skeptical about it there because I want to think about the motivation of the person or the company or organization that's, you know, putting that content up. I guess I look at it as I'm expecting it to be a piece of art. So, for instance, I'm going to be watching this Gwen performance, and to me, it's a recording artist. She's sharing her art. She's sharing her song. And then at the very end, I find out, oh, it's a commercial. It's, it's kind of like it takes me out of, of that enjoyment of the, the spectacle of the art. It makes me think about when I'm watching a movie. I don't know why, but um, Terminator 2 comes to my mind, and there's a scene where she's being interrogated, Linda Hamilton's character is being interrogated. And then there's like a subway cup on the interrogation desk. And I felt like I was just taken out in that moment of watching this great film. Well, I thought it was great at the time in high school. And then I see a subway cup. It just something about like waking, waking up the, the reader or the listener or the watcher. And you're immersing yourself in this environment that this artist has created. And then you, you bring in... I don't know. How do you reconcile? Because I understand the reality of, of um, product placement. and But how do you reconcile wanting to keep the sincerity of the art, but then also the reality of the commercial needs? Well, I think, it, I think initially it, it was disruptive, product placement, absolutely. But if you, if you think about it, these are actually artifacts from culture. So to see a box of Wheaties in the background or something, that's that's true to, true to life in some scenarios. So I don't think it's that disruptive. 
I think in the, the case of the Grammys, they are taking a, a creative position on introducing or sharing the brand with consumers. So I will give it to them for that because I think they were successful at it. There will always be people that don't like the idea of being sold to, and you're not always going to reach those people. But there are some people that are able to recognize that brands want to be a part of people's lives in different ways. And that's that can be through experiences. And in this situation, the Grammys is the overall platform for the experience. And then they're an add-on experience. I do think something else to note is that Target has very much aligned itself with the recording industry through their advertising, not only through their use of music. Uh, for example, uh, I, I remember always loving that they used um, the Beatles' uh, Goodbye, Hello, and a play on the idea of goodbye. And again, they have never been one to shy away from product placement, literally swirling popsicles and carts and shirts. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, that whole high-low combination of you know, you can buy popsicles here you could buy hand sanitizer but you can also buy a suit you know they've they combine all of these and you know now with the addition of groceries in target but um again back to the idea though their connection with the music industry they've always done these promotions where if you buy the artist cd there there's bonus tracks and they've done these very elaborate commercials um i know they've some of the We'll recut that. They've already always done the, they've always done these elaborate commercials, including Justin Timberlake, Pink, Adele, and it's branded to Target. It's got the look, but it's this very, you know, interesting collaboration that they have happening with these artists. And I think the Gwen Stefani spot was them taking it to the next level. Like, let's do this collaboration with her. Let's do a spot with her, but we're going to make it live. And when are we going to air it? We're going to air it on Music's Biggest Night. So I looked at it as a evolution of their ongoing association with the music industry and just taking the presentation and the artistry of it to a new level. So I didn't look at it as being fooled. I looked at it as them presenting what I look at as an anthology of commercials and, and these this connection that they've created with these artists in a in a new format and then this year with the the commercial that they presented I think it's um they've almost taken the, the two entities and put them together their commercials that they did with the high level of product placement and then combining it with the addition of these two recording artists and I think that what's really interesting about what you just said, Brian, is that what you're communicating is that they did give you something that you found entertaining or of value. And I think that that's where my mind goes back to in terms of the advice for brands is just find a way to give your audience something that they can walk away from, whether it's branded content or not, and say, you know what, I enjoyed that. And I think that was fun or um, valuable in some way. The fact is he's the sponsor. And you signed a contract guaranteeing him certain concessions, one of them being a spot on the show. Well, that's where I see things just a little differently. Contractor, no. I will not bow to any sponsor. Sorry you feel that way, but basically it's the nature of the beast. Maybe I'm wrong on this one, but for me, the beast doesn't include selling out. Garth, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like people only do things because they get paid. 
And that's just really sad. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. Look, you can stay here in the big leagues and play by the rules, or you can go back to the farm club in Aurora. It's your choice. Yes, and it's the choice of a new generation. So continuing the conversation from our last episode about content creation, I thought it'd be good to dive a bit into what the future of search is going to look like. So as we know, it's it, the first rule of search is to understand your audience, to do your keyword research. Um, it's also about having original stories, quality content, and producing it on a regular basis. So you have that cadence that you can disseminate on, throughout the calendar year. You also have to optimize the platform and the page and make sure you have all your inbound links. But search isn't all about Google, Yahoo, or Bing. It's also about the other largest search engines. The second largest site or search engine is YouTube. And most people don't think about that as a true search engine. The third largest site would be Facebook and, and how people use that as a platform. So Eric, what does this mean for marketers? What should we be thinking about when we think about the largest search engines that are out there right now? We should first start with Google and analyzing what they've been doing. They're always updating their algorithm. With RankBrain, which really focuses on artificial intelligence and how that's integrated into the platform so that when you search, it uses that algorithm to create content or present you with content that is relevant to what you're searching for. The other is Hummingbird, and this has been around for quite a while, and that's really focused on optimizing the algorithm overall. What this has done is really optimize the paid platform but then it also introduces new opportunities for organic search. So making sure that related questions are presented. Marketers are always thinking about the snippets and how to optimize the experience to make sure that when people submit a query to one of the search engines, the most contextually relevant result is presented. And a lot of that has to do now with the creation of AMP. So AMP is the Accelerated Mobile Pages Project. And the whole idea of that is to make sure that the internet is faster. It's presenting people with quality content. And this is a partnership between Google and a lot of the other publishers that are out there. So for a better understanding of what AMP is, uh, we wanted to pull some audio from a, a video that Google created. Those of us, when we first started playing with the web, the, the great thing was that you could, you could surf. You could go to one site, read something, find a link there, click, you're off to another site. It was the single greatest driver of innovation that we've ever seen. Thanks to smartphones, everybody has internet in their pocket. But the mobile web is really at, at odds with what everybody does on the web, which is surf and browse, and that should all be fast and easy, and right now it just isn't. So this thing which should be a source of utter wonder is a source of frustration. People bounce, so if the, if the page doesn't load within a couple seconds, they move on to the next page. That is the worst possible outcome for everyone involved. So. Google, together with dozens of other publishers and technology companies, sat down to try to find a solution for this. And our solution was the AMP project. AMP is a fantastic industry collaborative approach to make mobile web faster. You'll see the benefits of an AMP page when you first go to one. The first thing is instant speed. The next click is only sort of like one little scroll away. So I'm curious what you guys think about AMP because it changes visually the way search results look on the landing page. It also changes the type of content that is available. So with AMP, these approved articles essentially are at the top of the page. They have a featured image, there's the headline, and you can see that right at a glance right away after you conduct a search. 
so it sounds like what you're talking about, Eric, is that with AMP, what's going to happen, if not is not if not is happening already, is that publishers are being rewarded for displaying their content or presenting their Absolutely. content in the way that Google wants it presented. Um, you know, in their mind, this is a benefit to users. But, you know, when you look at it from a brand perspective, obviously, there's a lot of work that goes in on the back end to be able to fulfill that need. So what what is this going to mean long term? I mean, I know I, I know in the short term, it's not going to be something that every brand is able to embrace or put their arms around. But in the long term, um, do we think that this is going to be highly detrimental, minimally detrimental to brands that can't engage in that way? Um, who's going to win and who's going to lose? The publishers that participate in AMP will win because what's happening is we're creating this divide between the content that is quality and then that which has not been rewarded by Google as being quality content. And long term, this affects marketers in a huge way because if you're engaging with Google on AdWords or YouTube or DoubleClick, AMP is just another level. So the more that you're engaging with Google as a brand, your content is going to have a better quality score it's going to be presented higher on those pages and it's more likely that you're going to see engagement with your consumers. So I think it's going to have dramatic effect on brands and how they can engage and interact with their consumers. I'm just curious how AMP works, how the algorithm works. And when you use the word rewarded, are we referring to vetted? And when I think about something like AMP, I think about, is this a vehicle to root out fake news, something that we were talking about in our last podcast. So do you get vetted because you have proven to Google that you're not quote unquote fake news? I don't know. I'm just asking that question. How do you even get placed in that banner? How do you get that first sweet spot, that first spot that people, you know, will, will press their finger on as opposed to keeping, you know, swiping, swiping left because there's more stories as you swipe left and I'm assuming that first spot that plum position is that very first like the, that left hand spot but part of the, the rewarding that I was talking about there it's twofold one rewarding is about brands that are engaging in multiple platforms created by Google so YouTube double click AdWords amp so that's one way that Google rewards brands that's a whole other topic but what you're talking about specifically in regard to rewarding, it's if you're participating in AMP, that's because you've updated your website with appropriate code for AMP. That can be HTML, it can be JavaScript, and it's also thinking about the Google AMP cache. So those three elements are technology solutions that are required for a brand to have AMP on their website. Then when articles are published, they're marked as being AMP articles, and those are the ones that are presented at the top of the Google search result pages. Then if we look at the second largest search engine, Facebook, we have to understand that the paid model or the paid structure has increased dramatically over the last few years. So more brands are trying to focus on organic within Facebook. So that means how can we get more engagement from our fans? And one of the ways to do that is through thinking about more hyper-local opportunities. That could be hyper-local search, that could be hyperlocal events, could be hyperlocal content. For example, instead of Nike doing a, a big ad buy on Facebook and doing a brand message to promote the equality campaign that they have, they could launch events in local communities and focus on those hyperlocal 
messages to attract people and engage them with that message. That would be very effective for them. Obviously, Mikey has a large media budget, so they can do whatever they want. But to give you an idea of how that plays out as you think about the, the three tiers for national, regional, and local. I have a question about that. So would you say that over time, because of trends in technology, we're going to see media allocated more at the local level versus national buys? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more targeting that's happened in the last 15 years anyway. But what do you what do you think this means in terms of how spend is going to be reallocated or not? I think it's going to affect social media platforms. I don't think you'll see it on some of the other platforms, but I can see within social because it's about the communities that are online, but then also how can you have that online offline experience? The best way to do that is through that dissection of geography and and reaching people. So I do think that's going to increase. Just for conversation's sake, I mean, you can do that with print publications like the Wall Street Journal, or you can do that, you know, and you can segment by DMA. So you still think, though, even with traditional outlets where you can segment, or even regional ads on major news networks, you still think we're going to see it more on on social media? I do think that is true, because I think that some of these broader platforms that you were talking about, that's still a great place to have your, your brand awareness. But at, at the social level and in digital platform level, you can get to that customized level of, of geography. And I think that you'll see more of that. Not that you haven't seen it already. I just think it's gonna there'll be a larger focus there. Uh, the other thing that Facebook has done is they've introduced the idea of the video tab, right? So now they're trying to really focus on on video and bring that to the forefront. I personally dislike this. I, I think most of the content I see in that video section are videos that I just don't like and I don't want to see anyways because the quality isn't there. So I think they're going to see a reaction from people that engagement will be lower in, in the video tab section until the quality is reflective of what consumers want. And I don't think it's there yet. So it's going to take some time. I think for me too, um, maybe it's just a matter of them not getting the algorithm right for me. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself, but I, I do see a lot of what I saw when um, when Instagram started and to some degree when Facebook started. Um, but you know where it's like, hey, take a look at me. You know, I'm showing you what I'm eating for lunch. It's a lot more like that kind of content that's coming up in my feed or take a look at my kid or my cat, you know? Yeah. And it, it isn't something that's valuable. You know, I've gone in there, I've taken a look at the videos several times and it just isn't something that's valuable. So again, I think it's a matter of figuring out like what is the purpose of a tool like that? And for brands, I don't yet know um, how best to advise clients on how to use it because, you know, as a, as a user, and looking at, you know, how other users are responding to it, I just don't see the opportunity yet. So it'll be interesting to watch it over time and see, you know, what can be done. Yeah, I think it's worth waiting to see what's going to happen. Let them test it out and optimize and, and we'll see where it is in the, in the near future. The last platform to talk about is YouTube, the third largest site or search engine that is out there. And the last platform that we want to talk about is, is YouTube. And, and what they're doing right now is they're focusing on innovation and that being artificial intelligence and machine learning to make sure that the videos that come up when you search are the exact video that you might want to view. And, and as we know, the first few seconds of any video is critical for a user to decide if they want to watch that video or not. E-consultancy states that 94% of people skip spots after five seconds. 
which is interesting because YouTube launched last year the six-second pre-roll spot. So they've identified that people are not sticking around to watch these commercials at the beginning of videos. So YouTube has made an effort to enhance experience for users by making those videos more enjoyable by letting them get through those commercials quicker, which is a big learning for marketers as they create content. The other aspect about YouTube is that they want people to stay on the platform longer. Uh, back in the day, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to see a video that had several hyperlinks embedded in the video that you could click on and go to that, that website. Now, YouTube doesn't really want people to do that. They want them to stay on the site. They want people to create more videos on the website, but also more playlists. And if brands do that, they'll be rewarded. So again, thinking about Google as the dominant force here, if you're engaged on YouTube and you're following these, these best practices, you know, uploading your videos, creating more playlists, having the proper annotation, and then using other platforms like AdWords and DoubleClick and now AMP, you will be rewarded by Google for your efforts and you'll start to see the traffic come with it. All right, guys, there's been a lot to talk about this episode, but most importantly, who needs a bigger boat? I think that Peter Marcus needs a bigger boat. Why does he need a bigger boat, Eric? <laughs> well, he is a Detroiter, which just one of the reasons why I like this guy. The second reason, I guess, is that he created this program called Inside Out, which is a literary arts program out of Detroit. He's been a teacher in public schools for over 20 years, and this program has just grown a lot. What's really interesting is to think about Detroit public schools and how last year they had a, a bailout, $617 million. So th that sets up the scenario here. And then the other thing is that this year they're expecting that 38 different schools are going to be closing in Detroit. Yet this organization is pushing forward and really engaging students to be creative writers. My bigger boat this week appeals to the hobby that has been known as the hobby of king and the king of hobbies, and that is stamp collecting. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, I'm not what one would call a philatelist myself, but definitely perhaps... Can you say that again? Philatelist. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> yeah, no. It sounds illegal, doesn't it? That sounds it naughty. Exactly. No, that is a stamp collector. A philatelist. <laughs> We'll take your word for it. <laughs> you cannot be arrested for being a philatelist. <laughs> um, so, you know, but definitely, I obviously being a designer and an illustrator, I've, you know, I love when new stamps come out. I, every time I go to the post office, I, I love looking under the ca the glass counter that they have. I'm like, what's out today? You know, what's, what's out this month? Um, and just... Uh, um, as of the day before that we're recording this particular podcast, uh, uh, an impressive roster of guests at Grand Central Terminal in New York City, including Diane von Furstenberg, Anna Wintour, Michael Bloomberg, and Hillary Clinton herself, presented the newest uh, stamp series that is being released in honor of Oscar de la Renta. And so I thought this was a great uh, connection cool. to our discussion earlier about New York Fashion Week. And um, so this particular line of stamps is going to have um, 10 different design featuring um, patterns from his designs, as well as a portrait of, of Oscar himself. And um, just to, again, you know, we were talking earlier about fashion and how it's relevant to social issues today. And I thought a really beautiful statement that Hillary Clinton made was 
uh, quote, Oscar de la Renta was an immigrant. Aren't we proud and grateful that he was, unquote. And um, it's powerful. Absolutely. And so I just thought that was, uh, you know, something exciting to look forward to. And it also has uh, some social significance to it as well. So now you're you can look forward to designer envelopes going through the U.S. mail. My bigger boat goes out to Matt Lauer for actually growing a pair of. I have to say, you know, I I don't n- normally give props to Matt Lauer. I am not a Matt Lauer fan. Um, I like to get my news from Charlie Rose in the morning. But in um, the spirit of journalists um, really embracing their role as the fourth estate, as Jen mentioned on our last episode, um, I I have to say, you know, I really respect the way that he. Um, took Kellyanne Conway to task this week and um, how he held her accountable for trying to skew the facts. You know, again, you know, I, I, I think it's really important at a time like this, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, to recognize when there is false information being distributed and to call it what it is. Um, and I've really enjoyed hearing people like Dan Rather get involved in that conversation and was glad to see Matt Lauer use his platform to do the same um, and be very brazen with the way that he um, disarmed her. Disarmed her. Yeah, absolutely. So this week, Matt Lauer, you're on my nice list. Who needs a bigger boat? I think fathers and daughters need a bigger boat. Cute. I've been seeing a lot of things on my Facebook feed with father-daughter dances And I have to give props out to Philadelphia Dance Center. I don't know if you've seen this video that's gone viral. It was a father-daughter dance. Actually, it was bring your father to ballet class. And it's the most heartwarming, hilarious video of dads doing ballet with their daughters. Oh, my gosh. I have to see this. so amazing. Oh, my gosh. Um, And then I also have to give a shout-out to my own husband who's taking – our daughter to her first father-daughter dance tonight. Aww. Adorable. I, I have to, you know, on that note, I'll give a shout out to Mark Bram, who took me to my first father-daughter dance, <laughs> which was a hoedown. Nice. And maybe for a great extra, when we post this podcast on our website, I'll post a bonus photo. Whoa. That, deserve a, that deserves a woot-woot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a shout out to Eric and Hallie. Eric, someday you will be taking I your daughter- wait on her first father-daughter dance. Oh, maybe I'm almost ready. And a shout-out to me, who probably is the one who needs the biggest boat of all because I am as big as a house and my daughter is dancing in my belly at this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for another great episode. And uh, to all of you listening, tune in next time for more Open Swim. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at The Music Settlement. Founded in 1912, the settlement's mission is to create a community where artistic expression belongs to everyone by serving those who seek personal growth through the arts. Learn more at themusicsettlement.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow. On the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at sharkandminnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.